Hello and welcome to The Pod. I'm Nathan Fink. I'm Jasmine Torres-Allen, and this is New Hampshire Family Now. A show about building family in the Granite State. Today in the show, co-host Jasmine and I go back to school alongside our kids, and later assistant professor, director, and Children's Trust Strengthening Family Summit keynote, Dr. Wendy Ellis joins us to talk building community resilience and walk us through a day in the life. New Hampshire Family Now is brought to you by the New Hampshire Charitable Foundation. Since 1962, the Charitable Foundation has worked hand-in-hand with generous and visionary citizens to maximize the power of giving and support, collaborate, and lead innovative initiatives. Initiatives like New Hampshire Tomorrow, which is focused on making sure children and families have access to education, health care, and career pathways to ensure every family member thrives. To learn more about New Hampshire Charitable Foundation and all their initiatives, go to www. .nhcf.org. This podcast was also brought to you by Family Support New Hampshire. Family Support New Hampshire is NH's coalition of family resource centers and family strengthening programs that exist to ensure Granite State families have access to resources so both caregivers and children can succeed because supported families are strong families. To find a family resource center near you, visit www.fsnh.org. I put baby in a corner over there. (laughs) Well, hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you back, Jasmine. Yes. It's September. How's your back to school mojo going? It's been interesting because uh, I I think in the last one I talked about, you know, getting ready for school, right? Having that half hour a day to kind of talk about like, what are we doing back to school? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe we're reading, maybe we're practicing our math right before school. And then school started and then it just happened. And oh man, my kids have been just like falling apart after a day. And I think it's just adjusting to routine. You know what I mean? Like getting up early again, going to school school. There's a routine to follow now. And then by the time they get home, they're like, oh, my God, Mm -hmm. they won't say that they're tired and they won't say that they're exhausted, Mm -hmm. but they will sit there. Big emotions will come out. And then you're like, what's going on here? Right. (laughs) It's wild because I'm so glad you released that pre schooling preparation because we started getting into it. We all of a sudden picked up reading, starting to write, starting to notice numbers more just to get in the mindset. We also started talking about how are you feeling about it? Are you feeling many things? You know, give me those space. Are you feeling nervous? Right. That was the first, my my daughter and I practiced the word nervous because sometimes you use these emotional words and they don't exactly know what those mean. And so we talked about what nervous means. Like, do you get butterflies in your tummy? Do you, you know, get like maybe a headache because you're a little overwhelmed. Right. Right. And so we talked about all the ways we could potentially be nervous from something. And even then the first day she was just kind of like, I'm a little nervous now, but she was using it in the right context, which tells me, okay, we're tapping into those bigger emotions and we're putting names to those big emotions. In all of that too, I I think what's interesting is, you know, so we, we do the work, the pre-work to get them in a better mindset while to my mind, acknowledging that they're really is no preparation they're there then they're home and i'm like oh right these big emotions and you and then you have to realize like 
just like we have a long day at work, they have a long day at school and they go through all of the same, you know, sort of challenges like co-work. We have co-workers, they have classmates, you know right. what I mean? And so they have to deal with all of the challenges without us there, right? Because they're at this point, they're pra- they're putting into practice the tools that we've given them to be able to, you know, go throughout their day. Mm-hmm. I think now it's like practicing being that space that they can express those big emotions, right. but also how do we not contain them? Yeah, I think I'm right there with you because how do we notice them? How do we understand what's going through us, both as adults, but then in the child? Because if I notice, you know, when somebody's like, ah, oh, you're my, if my wife says to me, you're grumpy, it makes me so mad. Right. Because it's that extra layer. Yeah. And even when you tell your kids like, oh, it sounds like someone's tired. Exactly. They get so frustrated because yeah. they're like, I'm not tired. But those that's when I take a step back and I'm like, OK, have I practiced what I've preached in the sense of when I'm tired, do I express it and say it out loud or do I use my big emotions on everybody else around me? And, you know, so it it makes me usually take a step back and say, "Okay, have I practiced what it looks like to be a tired individual and expressing that in a healthy way? To me, this is all about creating spaces, right? Because what you know, my wife, she found a wonderful I mean, everything we know now is from Instagram, which is so sad, but it's crazy. There was this person who talked about, look, my kids need a full meal when they come home and they need that meal to be put in a comfortable spot and they need an hour. It's amazing. So, and we're talking little lunch bags with their names on them. And again, credit, 100% credit to my wife for doing this. In about 30 to 45 minutes, they emerge just decompressed. That's exactly what I was starting to figure out myself. I was like, if I have a routine at home that allows her to decompress, I'm teaching her that she can take a break in her day. And and when they become adults, they'll learn to recognize, oh man, I am tired. And they'll know how to decompress themselves. Yeah. Now, this is like a huge concept, but I'm starting to even rack this up into the culture we're creating in the home. You know, later on the show, Dr. Wendy Ellis, who's assistant professor in global health and a director of the Center for Building Community Resilience at George Washington University. And by the way, I just have to say to have a title like that. I'm like, whoa. And mine is just Nathan Fink, comma, and then somebody audibly sighs in the background. (laughs) She talks a lot about you know, building communities in that kind of larger global sense or that macro sense. And as I was talking to her, like anybody I talk to, I keep thinking, yes, it's such a huge concept, but then shrinking it to the micro and saying, what is the culture of the community we're building at home? Because it does start there. It starts there. It starts there. This is why it's so wildly important is because you're right. Culture starts at home. And if we can get that culture rolling in the right direction and a culture, like you said, that's safe, non-judgmental, and allows space for growth. Great, because then you want your kids to be able to talk to you about how they feel. I mean, it doesn't happen overnight. It 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 happens when you start establishing those spaces for them to be able to express those emotions, decompress. It starts there. And like you said, it's that community building. It starts in your home. So if you're practicing that with your, your kids, they're going to practice those similar habits with other people and allowing them to have spaces where they can express their emotions, too. Right. Thank you so much, Jasmine, for coming back to the show. It's always a pleasure to see you. Always happy to be here, Nathan. (laughs) And when we come back, I welcome Dr. Wendy Ellis. Don't go anywhere. 
Today's episode was brought to you by Upreach Therapeutic Equestrian Center. Located in Goffstown, New Hampshire, Upreach partners with the power of horse to create strong children, strong families, and strong communities. To learn more about Upreach Therapeutic Equestrian Center and its many inspirational programs, visit upreachtec.org. That's upreachtec.org. Today's show was also brought to you by Burgu Media, a full-service media company dedicated to helping nonprofits realize impact stories for print, video, social and legacy media, and more. Both budget-conscious and grant-friendly, Burgu Media helps your organization celebrate the humans in human services. Learn more at burgumedia.com. Hey, it's Nathan, co-host of New Hampshire Family Now. I wanted to take a quick break from the show because it occurred to me that I've never asked you to subscribe to this podcast. Subscribing is free, and when you do it, it helps our placement algorithms, making it that much easier for caregivers across New Hampshire to find valuable information and strategies for their families. Also, you'll be alerted when a new episode drops. And if you like the show, leaving a review helps us that much more. So go to wherever you get your podcast, type in New Hampshire Family Now, and as the kids say, smash that subscribe button. Button. I say click it because if you smash it, then you're going to need a new one. Thank you and enjoy today's podcast. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Wendy Ellis, Assistant Professor in Global Health and the Director of the Center for Community Resilience at the Milken Institute School of Public Health at George Washington University and Speaker at the Children's Trust 11th Annual Strength and Family Summit. Dr. Ellis, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. So I wanted to start with the pair of aces, which for many reasons, but one of which is that I've been hearing about this for years. So I'm so excited to have this conversation with you um, and your innovative frame to address childhood experiences in the context of adverse community environments, meaning that when we see ACEs in our children, those ACEs have deeper roots in our community. Can you talk a little bit about some of those greater adverse environments that can lead to ACEs? Yeah. So, you know, I often tell people that when you look at that tree, you're really looking at a story. And, you know, you take the story of, say, a mother who is bringing their child to a first well child visit. And perhaps the mother doesn't maintain eye contact with the physician and or doesn't appear to be bonding very well with the baby. And, you know, from that eyesight, you know, observation, you could say, well, maybe she has as postpartum depression or, you know, maybe the baby's really fussy and is not sleeping at night. So she's not getting enough rest. And so maybe that's the connection. So those are like the branches and the leaves, the things that we see. But what if we were to ask a question and find out, you know, what did you, what did it take for you to get here today? Mm. How many buses might you have to have taken to get from point A to point B? Was there enough food for you to eat this morning? How did you rest last night? Um, How do you rest most nights? Do you have a regular address? Um, Do you have someone that can help support you so that you can best support your child? Do you have other children in the home? Are they in school all day? Can you afford daycare? When do you have to go back to work? You know, those questions help us to begin to understand economic stability, 
Mm. housing stability, affordability, both for childcare as well as for home. Um, and then, you know, thinking about food instability, it's not just looking at the outcome or the the, the individual's presentation, mm. but it's thinking about the soil in which they're rooted. Are they rooted in those things that are depicted in that paravasis tree? Those are the adverse community environments. And so, you know, when I started really working from a coalition standpoint, we knew that from the social determinant science, it's not going to be just about the administration of health care or public health, but it's going to be all these other sectors that contributed to that story that I just told, you know, around housing, around education, access to quality early childhood education, food, infrastructure, public transportation infrastructure, and a parent's ability to actually afford a lifestyle that can support children for optimal health and well-being. I love the idea of putting that person in the context of, you know, their surrounding environment, like you're saying, and using that to understand what are our opportunities. But when you read that list and that list went on and I was thinking of myself when we first had our first son and no was the answer to most of the yes or no questions, which when I think about it in terms of ACEs and these things that have happened, I can tend to get in deficit mindset, but I get really excited about your the building of community resilience or BCR because this is flipping it upside down or right side up, I should say, if you're a fan of Stranger Things, which I am. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to talk about that because the idea from a general spec uh, perspective that we need both of these sides, right? We need to understand where we're at to see deficits and look at our opportunities. So I wanted you, if you could, to speak into the balance of both of these ideas. Yeah, you know, so it was really important, first off, that we be able to have some clarity. What is the problem that we're trying to solve. And the paravasis tree allows us to create that level of clarity, not just from a systems perspective of looking at data, which are typically populated on the branches and the leaves of that tree, but to really think about what is the experience that get, you know produces those outcomes intentionally and, and oftentimes reliably based on race or place. But also reliably in those places, you have stories of individuals who are thriving. Mm -hmm. I myself have an ACEs score of eight, and yet you would be hard pressed to say that I'm not thriving based on looking at my career, correct? So there are strengths that despite the adversities that one may be raised in or facing, there are strengths and resources that individuals and communities have always been able to draw upon. So when we're looking at the over incidence of adversity, meaning those branches and leaves, we're seeing that despite the fact that there are strengths, there's still this preponderance of the experience of trauma, which when you begin to compare populations, you begin to understand the difference isn't because of race, isn't just because of place. It's because of systematic underinvestments in that soil. There's a fundamental difference in the quality of the soil of these communities where individuals have a greater opportunity to thrive, to bounce back and to thrive. And so when we think about resilience, that's what we want to we want to look at. We want to look at what is needed, not just to reduce the incidence of trauma, but to really increase the opportunity for our children and for our families to bounce forward and thrive. And so that's where the resilience piece of this comes into place. When we're working with communities, we want to see, well, what are 
are what is working because there are things that are working here clearly what what are the strengths that we can build upon what are the assets that are already in place and where do we need more to create a more equitable opportunity to have not just the reduction of say depression mm. but an increase in hope which is something that is not ephemeral there's a validated hope scale that's out there. And many of those elements that contribute to hope are those things around social cohesion. Well, how do we get to social cohesion? Well, people have a collective sense of community. They have third spaces. They have coffee shops. They have a vibrant business communities. They have schools where they become the hub for social as well as educational needs. So that's where the, you know, we can we can tell a story around the pair of aces, but we can also equally dream and tell a story that if we are successful in changing that, the what's in the soil, the nutrients that are in that soil, then we have the opportunity to create a resilient community. So I think that, you know, that is really what was different about our approach. It wasn't just merely looking at reducing the incidence of trauma or adversity, but it was thinking about how can we measurably change that soil that will then produce not just reductions, but actual increases in positive results that we know from the science help us to create optimal opportunities for child well-being. Now, part of your approach, building community resilience, you've got four quadrants, right? You're talking about shared understanding, a state of readiness, cross-sector partners and partnership, and an engaged community. Can you kind of talk us into how these quadrants lean into each other to create these environments where resilience can be fostered? Yeah. So, you know, you read that in a, as, as if to suggest a stepwise fashion. And as I often tell people, it really isn't that. If you look closely at the process, you'll see there are these two arrows that kind of hint at this idea that this is a continuous process. So the pair of aces tree has been, well, we developed it really as a communication tool and a coalition building tool. Let's get clear. What's the problem that we're trying to solve? The 10 aces were used as just a storytelling device. Like this is an example, but every community is going to define what is on their branches and their leaves differently. And some of those classic aces will not be the ones that will populate those branches and, and the leaves. And that's important. Because again, we have to have a starting point that is representative of the experience of the community that we serve. Mm. And so you hear, I've already, I've said community, what, three or four times just in the <laughs> to your answer. So you can, you can clearly see what is probably the most essential ingredient out of those four elements there is you can't get to a shared understanding if you don't have community at the part at the table, but you can't do much with a shared understanding if you also don't have cross-sector partners that equally understand what's the problem that we're trying to solve. Mm. From understanding that fundamental, you know, question and identifying what is it that we're going to tackle, that's when you can get to the assessment piece. Like, okay, well, let's understand what are the resources that we already have in place? What are the supports that perhaps maybe just need to be reallocated? It's not always about spending more money. It's about stepping back and just looking at the, at the picture here. You know, if you have 
say 13% of uh, truancy rate in one part of the city versus a 2% truancy rate, but you have equal numbers of supports to prevent truancy, perhaps there needs to be a reallocation there. (laughs) And where we have a higher truancy rate is where they should have more of the services to prevent such. If you have a school district where you have 25 students that are per classroom and you only have 20 books for that class for either one of those classrooms, but you've got another school district that has 16 students and 25 textbooks, one would look and say, well, perhaps we should shift more of the textbooks to one place or here's an idea. Maybe we should try to equal out how we're using the physical resources here. Is there a much more equitable way to use the resource, the physical resources that we've already invested in. Mm. And, and, and when we're thinking about that, it's not just merely moving students from place to place. It's also thinking about criticality with regard to relationships, like student, like teacher ratios are real. There's a reason why we have ratios, right? So if you have a 16 to one ratio versus a 25 to one ratio, one can already begin to understand What is going to be the difference in the quality of the education, the quality of time that a student is going to have with a with a teacher? So it's those types of really assessing. Are we are we using making the best use of the resources that we already have at play? Is there an opportunity to think about redistribution um, so that we can have greater equity and access to supports and resources that we know from the literature helps us to understand what creates more equitable outcomes? But then also. Also, when we think about um, when we think about how all of these pieces fit together, that's when the cross sector partners can begin to understand what's my role in this. You know, I talked about distribution of classroom, you know, distribution of classroom resources. We could easily be talking about bus routes. We could be talking about you know the the newest grocery store that's going to go in. Do we really need another grocery store where we already have eight within a mile area instead of like where we have a food desert and we only have mom and pop stores. So these are the types of opportunities when you have these cross-sector partners that includes business and economic development that we can really begin to critically assess how we're providing resources, not just around access to healthcare and behavioral healthcare, but all of those supports and buffers that support health and well-being. I realize this is probably out of order and a very simple kind of distant question, but why? Why resilience? Why resilient communities? Why is that the goal for us? So first off, let's do a let's do a quick level set on when we're talking about resilience in the in the context of the Center for Community Resilience. Let's so let's talk about community resilience first off. And I want to just make a level set that this is not using or building off of the definition that you'll often find in Webster's or any other dictionary that defines resilience in the terms of physics, which is an object's ability to retain shape after suffering impact, not applying that to that principle to the human spirit. When we talk about community resilience, it's really more so derived from the science around community resilience that came out of emergency preparedness and disaster response. So how well a community is able to bounce back after suffering disaster of some sort. What we've done at the Center for Community Resilience is apply a public health lens to that and saying, so public health is all about primary prevention. Hmm. So if we already can pre-identify What are some of those key elements that we know help a community bounce back after disaster? 
From a public health perspective, we also know that those things can have a dual purpose. They can prevent the onset of day-to-day traumas, day-to-day adversity. So you've got chronic and you've got acute adversity. And so why community of resilience is that there are things that are going to happen to our communities that we have no control over, whether that is a disaster, whether that is a large employer closing its plant and suddenly you have 25% unemployment, whether that is suddenly the state suffers a funding a shortage and we now have to cut education, public education funding across the board, across all districts. We know there are some things that are beyond our control, but if we have put in place an equitable distribution of resources, we've already set up our communities to be able to withstand those types of traumas and shock. But we've also put in place an opportunity that helps to build even more buffers in the face of what we know are chronic adversities right now, whether that's violence, whether that's poverty, whether that is chronic disease or what have you. So that's why it's community resilience, because it's looking at from a public health perspective, what would be the best types of investments that we can make that actually begin to nip at the chronic, the experience of chronic adversity, while also being realistic that there are other things that are going to happen, that we also need to have these resources in place. So if we can, can we look at community resilience per that definition? And if you were to see it in action, what would you be seeing? So you want me to tell you, let's go take a walk. (laughs) So first off, we have an alarm that goes off, right? And when that alarm goes off, we have to wake up our children before they get ready for school. And we need to make sure that they have a nutritious breakfast. Oh, you know what? I have to be at a 730 meeting. I'm not going to have time to drop the kids off. But you know what? Down the street, if I walk you to our neighbors, you all can walk to school together. And and I know that you'll get to school safely. And I don't have to worry about what's happening in the environment because you guys can actually walk to school together by yourselves because our neighbors, we all know each other. And we all know we have some sense of collective identity for the children that live in our community. Well, as we're walking to school, we see that we can hear the birds chirping. We have clean sidewalks, well taken care of sidewalks. When we get to our school, there are adults there that have time to actually stand outside of the school and welcome us. And you know what? Last night, I didn't sleep so well. I had a really bad dream. And I want to talk to a school nurse just because I'm feeling a little nervous. And I maybe it has to do with the math test that I have to take. Can I take a couple minutes to go talk to the school nurse just to have a check-in and maybe I can do some breathing exercises and then I'll get to my classroom. Meanwhile, me, the parent, I have been able to get to my 7.30 meeting. I'm not worried about, did my kids get to school? I'm not worried about whether or not they're safe because they are safe. Um, I know that my neighborhood is cohesive, that if something is to happen at my house, someone's going to call me. When I'm at work, you know, if I get a call from the school nurse that says, you know, I'm a little concerned about Brenda. She came in a little nervous this morning. Is it possible you might be able to be here a little bit early, perhaps, and we can all sit down and we can talk about her dream that she had and deal with a little bit around 
around her anxiety. And I can give you some tips to work on that as well. I have an employer who understands that as a working parent, I may need to take from time to time some time off to go and attend to my child. So there's flexible, um, there's flexible policies there for parents to be able to juggle real family life. When we get home that night, we just say, hey, after dinner, let's go take a walk. Let's go play in the park. Let's walk the dog. Let's talk to our neighbors. When we get to, we stop at the neighborhood ice cream store, we're hearing conversations about, hey, there's going to be a party at the, at a block party at the park this Saturday. What are you guys going to bring? No one's worried about danger from violence or what have you, but it's just a cohesive community. So what have I just talked about here? I've talked about supports and education. I've talked about economic security. We've assumed that from the sound of that story, it's a pretty safe neighborhood. It's also a safe household that they're in. There's a reduction of stressors, both for the child, because they have access to someone who can help them work through what is probably a normal anxiety. Kid had a bad dream, but also has a test coming up. A little anxious about that, but there's someone that they can talk to and they can connect with their parents as well. The parent's not worried about, did my kid eat? Did my kid get to school? Is my kid well taken care of. And they're not anxious also about the fact that I need to take some time to go see my child and attend to their emotional needs because the school called. They're able to do that. And at the end of the day, they're spending quality time together in a safe environment. This day, the weather was great. So they were outside, which means that the public infrastructure is there. The sidewalks are safe. There's lights there's safety, there's public safety. So that's what community resilience looks like. Now, if there were a disaster that were to strike that community, they have something to come back to. And that's really important too, when we think about, and we learn this from the, the, from the science of emergency preparedness. When you look at some areas of New Orleans that have never bounced back from a hurricane that hit over 15 years ago, what did they have to come back to? No economic opportunities, lower education opportunities because of the schools that were not invested in. When you think about the public infrastructure there, there was nothing to come back to. That's what a community without resilience looks like versus the story that I just told. Dr. Ellis, will you run for office, please? <laughs> oh, I think they would run me out of things. <laughs> I, I, I tell, I, you know, I'm just programmed to tell the truth. And, you know, unfortunately, in the political environment that we're in, that's not exactly what makes you popular. Dr. Ellis, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time and thank you for keynoting our 11th annual strength. Family Summit. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Many thanks to the Samuel P. Hunt Foundation for sponsoring this podcast. Established in 1951, Samuel P. Hunt Foundation is a Manchester-based, independent nonprofit that provides grants primarily for the arts, children and youth services, faith-based organizations, educational institutions, healthcare, and human services. This podcast was brought to you by Nixon Peabody, who delivers exceptional legal services for clients in the community by combining high performance in entrepreneurial spirit, deep engagement, and an unwavering commitment to a culture of collaboration, diversity, and humanity. Nixon Peabody works with universities, hospitals, and nonprofits of every size to maximize impact. For more information, visit nixonpeabody.com. 
Today's show was also brought to you by Merrimack County Savings Bank, who proudly supports the mission and efforts of New Hampshire Children's Trust. Founded in 1867, Merrimack has served people, businesses, nonprofits, and municipalities in central and southern New Hampshire for over 155 years by treating everyone with care, respect, and compassion. Visit your local offices in Bow, Concord, Kentuckook, Hookset, and Nashua, or go to www.themerrimack.com. New Hampshire Family Now is listed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and more. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play New Hampshire Family Now.